We are so excited that you are here to listen to the Script Cake Podcast. Go ahead. Make my day. We want to help you develop your idea into a great screenplay. And who knows? Maybe you'll write the next big blockbuster. So you're telling me there's a chance. Yeah! Well, there's always a chance, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Are you ready to learn about screenwriting? All right, then. Let's get started. Enjoy. Welcome to the Script Cake Podcast. I am your host, Lavender Gill. And this week, you get two for the price of one. We have the Davids, David Diamond and David Wiseman, who've had an amazing career in Hollywood. Uh, Movies like The Family Man, starring Nick Cage and Tia Leone. Ivan Reitman's Evolution, Old Dog, starring John Travolta and Robin Williams, and When in Rome, starring Kristen Bell and Joss Duhamel, uh, as well as numerous television projects, Disney projects, other things that they've written. Their uh, combined writing experience has grossed over a billion dollars for the industry, and they also happen to have written a really cool book called Bulletproof, Writing Scripts That Don't Get Shot Down. I'm only about halfway through it. I apologize for that. And I want to tell you, I've been hosting a screenwriting podcast for a few years. I've taught screenwriting for 20 years. Uh, I've written multiple movies that have been made. I have my own book on screenwriting. And in the first 50 pages of this book, I have taken so many notes and learned so much information that I implore you to go purchase this. We're going to talk about this as well as her careers. Welcome to the Script Cake Podcast, Davids. Thank you, Levin. That was so nice. Thank you. Is that actually true? That's nice. It is actually true. I can actually go through in here. And uh, like one of the things that just kind of blew me away was your breakdown of a one pager and the examples oh, you okay. give and the nine points that you have. Uh, let me zip through some other things that stick out here that I've highlighted. Uh, the whole notion that you guys, uh, and we'll talk about this in some detail when you were writing WizKid, if Disney were making a movie our movie, what would it look like? And kind of looking at it from the top down. Yeah. That was a moment for us. That's a huge thing. And, you know, we'll talk about that into some detail. I want to talk about the, uh, the animated live action comedy thing you rewrote that was written by William Goldman. I'm, I want to know all about that because I'm a huge William Goldman fan. Oh boy. Yeah. The princess opportunity to rewrite the master didn't go. Before we get into any of that, I want to talk about your careers guys. First of all, um, it's almost like a full circle moment because I'm sitting in Philadelphia talking to you as one of the Davids is this whole thing started in Philadelphia. Can you tell me where you guys started and kind of how you built that into uh, moving to L.A. and going from there? Uh, That's true. We started, we uh, grew up here and in this area. We went to high school together here in the suburbs. We've been best friends since we were 15. And um, but, you know, definitely at least in the 80s when we were growing up, uh, if you were in Philly, you thought that the actors made up their own lines. Screenwriting was not not a thing for us, uh, but we loved movies, and uh, we challenged ourselves one day when we were teenagers to see as many as we could in a single day in the theaters, and we got to five. Wow, which is pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good. Um, that that included a midnight showing of Woodstock. So I don't know technically. Technically, it's over two days. Yeah, <laughs> not even four, but you know, or five with an asterisk. But uh, loved movies, 
Um, we separated for college. I ended up going to NYU and studying liberal arts, um, but discovered about halfway through that um, I was more interested in what all my friends were doing. They were all in the acting or directing program in Tisch. So I transferred and uh, and then moved to LA with a bunch of friends from NYU. And uh, I worked for a producer for about a year um, and had a great experience doing that and realized while I was doing that, that writing was really the thing I wanted to focus on. And uh, so I started to do that. David, meanwhile, was um, in a PhD program in Chinese history. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So you can imagine the conversation with his parents when he told them that uh, the two of us, he was going to drop out of grad school and the two of us were going to become writing partners and, and try to do this together. But that's that's basically what happened. And um, wow, I told David that I, I thought that if he moved to L.A. and did this with me, that we would be successful in a year. And as you can imagine, a year came and went. And we were really nowhere. I mean, I don't know. Were we nowhere? Maybe we had had a couple nibbles on a couple. No, I think after a year, it was a pretty, uh, maybe we had had a couple nibbles, actually. You're right. But uh, yeah, but it, it's it's funny because um, my memory of it was more that um, the time pressure was was you, not me. Like, because uh, you had been doing it much longer. I was, you know, I was, I was new to it and, and kind of loving just living this creative life in LA with my best friend and, you know, getting at a graduate school, which, you know, was, was, was relatively constraining environment um, and, and, a little, and tougher than, you know, even uh, eating every meal at Subway sandwich as we did in those days. Uh, so I remember almost the pressure being the other way, like, uh, Jesus better happen fast or else Dave Diamond's going to go to law school or something. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so yeah, but I mean, that's a pretty good summary of, of what, of, of what happened. I think we went from, you know, um, real, just movie buffs who didn't really know anything about the movie business, which was, you know, I think the difference between being a movie buff in New York and a movie buff in Philadelphia was really that like, in, in Philadelphia, you just love the movies. You didn't really think too much about how they were made. And in New York, you got to think a little bit more, maybe L.A. too, about how they were made. But we were, yeah, we were a couple of knucklehead kids. And, uh, yeah. Now, I've, what, what was it that David said to you that convinced you to drop out of a Ph.D. program and move across the country? Like, that seems like not a decision that's made very lightly. Lavinder, you can't imagine how easy it was. <laughs> he just, you know, he, he, my parents, my parents who were, you know, old world immigrant Jews from uh, from Europe, they referred to him as Der Sudden, which means Satan in Yiddish. So um, I think uh, he just said, you know, we're we're, we're going to be great at this and we're going to be successful. And that's all I needed to hear. I think that, you know, uh he had worked in the business and I, listen, I loved writing with him. We, we had already started writing together way before this. So I loved that. It was, it was much more fun and more exciting than, than the work that I was doing in grad school. So he really didn't have to say all that much, but man. I, I uh, think that what, what it really came down to was 
and now I'm totally speaking for David, but he was very good at grad school. He was successful in grad school and good at it, but movies he loved. Yes. So the opportunity to do something you love with somebody. With your best friend in Los Angeles uh, and and, and the absolute certainty promise of success within one year. Like I was staring down another five years of, you know, work on my dissertation, work on my orals, work on like, you know, the graduate school in the humanities, a long haul. And uh, and I had funding, but, you know, it wasn't like I wasn't living I wasn't living the life of luxury. I mean, you know, and then I got out to L.A. and of course, I'm still eating at Subway every meal for the next two and a half years. But whatever. It was great. We had the time of our lives. Uh, When I think back on our career, that's the time where really you know, the most, uh, the romance of starting a creative life is really associated with that. And it is, there are among my best memories and I cherish them. So. Well, that is awesome. Um, in your book, you talk a little bit about kind of how you got your first uh, start. You sent out a bunch of query letters, you know, trying to get some things made. Can you talk about the process of being out in LA, you know, eating Subway sandwiches for a year and just trying to figure out how to break in? Yeah, we were, you know, we were just writing script after script. We we just kept going and going and going. And, you know, we were living together at the time and our apartment was like a factory. I mean, it was really running almost 24-7 because we would, we would work together in the afternoon. We would plan things out meticulously. And David was a night person and I was a morning person. So he would be writing, you know, we'd watch TV in the evening after dinner and then he would work at night and I'd wake up in the morning, there'd be a stack of pages outside my bedroom door. And then I would pick it up in the morning and then it'd start all over again. Um, we did one after the next. And when we were done, we would give them to our friends to read and we would get feedback. And when we wrote one that seemed like, okay, we could get some traction with this. It's worth giving this to some more people to read. I had been working as a freelance script reader I had been doing it for you know many years longer than I had intended to do it, but the upside of it um, was that I established relationships with people who worked at at studios uh, and production companies and features and in TV, and um, so there was a standing offer pretty much in every case when you've written something that you think is good that you're ready to share. I'd be happy to read it, and so. On more than one occasion, you know, we took advantage of of those offers, um, took advantage of it in a good way, but not uh, in a bad way, meaning we didn't ask people over and over and over again to read our stuff. But um, question, Lavender? I do have a question. How many scripts did you write before you felt like you had one that you were willing to move forward with? I'm going to let David Weissman feel that one. I mean, we thought they all were amazing, as everyone (laughs) Uh, But I think that between the two of us, before we had something that was really um, ready for prime time, uh, between the two of us, we'd probably written 15 or 20 scripts. So it was not like, wow, you know, we had a lot of, uh, yeah, 
I mean, maybe not, maybe not as many as 20, but certainly. Uh, yeah. I mean, besides say between 10 and 15, probably more like 13. Uh, Cause I, I wrote, I think four on my own. He wrote at least three or four on his own. And then we wrote at least five on our uh, together, including a, a TV pilot. Uh, you know, we just, we had a great work ethic, which I think was, um, you know, one of the things that carried us through those, those tough early years, which is, um, we were very process oriented. We loved doing it. It was fun. We made each other laugh. That was, you know, it was a, it, it was a, a joy to be doing it. So, um, and yeah, it was disappointing each time that the script did not sort of produce the results we want, but we got better with every script. We were not, um, we were not, uh, fools about it. We, we, we took, we took the criticism that we got from our friends in our immediate circle very seriously. And I think, um, you know, when we finally did something that was kind of both creatively interesting and a little bit commercial, uh, you know, it wasn't that script that, that launched our career, but it was the script that got us the attention of somebody who has the, had the ability to launch our career. Okay, and that was the script uh, where the uh, people take over the all-you-can-eat yeah. buffet, yes. right? What was yes. it called? Again? People of Girth. Yeah, people, people of Girth. People of Girth, and it was uh, about uh, four uh, frustrated people who are kicked out of a 24-hour all-you-can-eat buffet for no good reason. And Other than that, they were heavy, and that they were, were eating this this guy out of out of all the all of his stock. And uh, and they they take over the buffet and they hold the manager hostage and and it got us to an agent who read it and said to us, "There's a fun, fresh comic voice in this script. I don't feel like this is a screenplay I can sell. I could probably get you meetings with it, and those meetings might possibly ultimately." get somewhere, get you something. But uh, I think that if you apply the voice that I'm reading in this script to something that's a little bit more mainstream commercial, you could really leapfrog into the mainstream of the movie business. And we took him up on that challenge. We sat down with him again a couple of weeks later with a list of 16 ideas, which is probably um, <laughs> 13 or 14 more than we should have brought with us. Um, and, uh, but eventually we, we did find one that he sparked to and said, I, I think if you write that and you write it in the right way, we might get somewhere with that. And, uh, and it's a, it's a longer story, but that is what happened. Yeah. Can you go through the other, uh, 15 ideas with me right now? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure we remember a couple of them, but the, the irony is that, um, I mean, look, all young screenwriters, I think, face the same challenge, which is, you know, you feel you, youth, you have the energy and you have, you know, you have volume in your youth. Right. And and a lot of of, of maturation as a screenwriter is coming to understand that it's not a volume business. It's a, it's 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 a quality business. <laughs> And so, you know, you find you find your voice and find that thing. And but you but enthusiasm goes a long way. I mean, the kids of today, I think, you know, people that are doing this now and starting out, that enthusiasm has to carry you through a lot 
of hard work and disappointment and um, knows. So use it, uh, take advantage of it. Um, it's not a terrible thing to have 16 ideas to pitch that first agent that wants to rep you um, because, you know, at the very least, you're going to show this guy that, you know, you're doing the work. Um, and I think he was, you know, God love him. He was, he was impressed by our enthusiasm, if not by our ideas, but he did find one uh, that, and and only one, by the way, we only sold one of them. So, you know, we didn't, we would have sold all 16 of them. I think if it was up to us. <laughs> well, one of the things that he said was uh, you have a fresh voice and something I, I, you know, have spent years trying to put my finger on what exactly does that mean? What is a, what is a voice? Cause every time I talk to anybody, they give me kind of a different angle on it. What is your take on voice? What does that mean? You know, I think what, what is the saying? There are only seven stories. How many stories are there? Is it seven? I don't know how many there are, but uh, you know, we, we tend to tell the same stories over and over in different ways and when they're really engaging, it's because the person telling the story is just seeing that story through a slightly different lens and presenting it in a way that's authentic to that person. And it's compelling. You just have, you're seeing something that you might have seen before, but never in this way. And I think that that's a big part of, I mean, look, we we write mostly, you know, relatively conventional studio kinds of movies, mostly comedies. And, um, you know, we're not geniuses and we're not big rules breakers in our, in our, in any aspect of our lives. Um, but you hope that you bring something to it that is fresh and interesting and fun and that people feel like they haven't seen somewhere else. It's like, you know, people used to ask, aren't you afraid, you know, when you're telling someone your idea, aren't you afraid that someone's going to steal your idea? And that's, I, I guess it's a legitimate question and there's a longer answer to it. But personally, I never felt concerned about that for us because I felt like, Someone else with the someone else isn't going to do the idea that we're going to do in the way that we're going to do it. Right. We're going to do it in a way that is distinctive. And um, you know, when when we were writing movies like The Family Man and and uh, script called Guan Goes to the Moon, which wasn't ultimately made, but became a little bit of a famous script in Hollywood because it was around for so long and active for so long and almost made so many times. These were like you know they were Diamond and Weissman scripts. Um, and, uh, I think that's kind of, I don't know, Dave, what do you think? I, I agree. I mean, you know, voice is something that, uh, if you have it, somebody will refer to something as a Diamond and Weissman script because they'll know it when they see it. Um, the truly great filmmakers and the truly great writers, they reinvent their voices over the course of their career. I mean, you know, Scorsese's movies, um, uh, have, have, he's sort of constantly reinventing himself. Um, and I think, you know, the, although there are similarities as, as things go through, but, um, you don't need to reinvent yourself to have a career, but you do need a voice to have a career because, you know, we're about, uh, 
I think um, five years away from from chat GBT being able to write a bad romantic comedy. So if you if you know writing a bad romantic comedy can now be done probably by AI in about about 10 seconds. Um, so uh, but I don't think chat GBT will ever be able to write when Harry met Sally. And so uh, that will always be um, a commodity, a voice like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, the script that he chose, I believe, was one that uh, I don't know if it was called this at the time, but WizKid? Yeah. It was called The WizKid. It was about a 12 year old slacker kid who, through a specific device in the movie, becomes a genius magically overnight and upsets the expectation of his friends and family and his teachers, his school, uh, a girl he's interested in. And at that time, you know, Macaulay Culkin was the biggest star in the world. Elijah Wood was coming up behind him. Elijah Wood uh, attached himself to our screenplay and we ended up selling it. uh, Our agent went out with it on a Tuesday and by Friday he had sold it as part of a two picture deal to Fox. Unbelievable. Yeah, it was great. So what inspired that idea? How did that come about? I th- I think that, you know, I mean, this is really, I think, whenever somebody says this is really interesting, it's usually not, but this is really interesting. <laughs> um, you know, the idea itself is, it's it's not, it's not a completely unique or special idea. You know, we grew up with these Disney movies like The Computer Who Wore Tennis Shoes and Flubber and, you know, things like that. Like, they were movies that were just fantasy fulfillment movies for for kids. Um, and so when we had this idea, it was more kind of a zeitgeisty idea because these movies were getting made. And, and uh, I think um, Disney had gone through this major transformation from the company that made, you know, the Apple Dumpling Gang into, you know, the company that... Um, that uh, was sort of making uh, like more commercial mainstream comedies or whatnot. Uh, and um, so so I think what what this this agent that we were sitting down with responded to was just like, oh, that has a commercial sensibility to it. This is what people are looking for now. And so we, of course, then proceeded to do it in the least commercial way possible, literally the least commercial way possible. We made it dark. We kind of, um, you know, we sort of uh, made it about about really about a kid who magically becomes a genius and it ruins his life, which, you know, we didn't think that's what we were doing, but it really was. It was it was just for us. It was just what we wanted. Mm-hmm. And we, you referenced before this moment where um, we sort of asked um, how Disney would do it. And the, the context was the agent who had asked us, who had said, OK, this is the idea to work on. We'd given him two drafts of this movie and he didn't care for it. I mean, he he gave us notes and he kind of played along, but it was done in absolutely the wrong way. And his reaction was, maybe this isn't the idea. And we knew what that meant was maybe you guys aren't the right clients, you know, uh, and, and that was really frightening to us. And so when we went away, we went to Vegas, which was a place that we got a lot of creative inspiration. And we sat down and we asked ourselves, okay, how would Disney do this movie? And it sounds like an innocuous question, but it was a it was it was a, such a pivot in our career because it was the first time we said, okay, 
You're not writing for yourselves. You're writing for a market. You're writing for for Hollywood. And how would a company that has a distinctive voice do this idea? And when we answered that question, then we applied our distinctive voice to an idea that was distinctive to a studio. And that was the magic sauce. That was it for us. Uh, within, I don't know, three, four weeks, we had written the script that uh, when now when this agent read it, he said, OK, I can sell this. He had some notes, but and true to his word, uh, you know, within six weeks, the movie had been sold. So it was a it was a pivotal moment. And I think, you know, a pivotal moment for anybody who wants to do this professionally is the realization that if you want to be a professional at this, this is a collaborative business, but it is a business. You know, somebody is going to have to say, okay, I want to do this because I think it's commercial. Right. One of the things that I've been teaching for some time and I was happy to actually see in your book was having my students find what I called a model movie. You know what I mean? Find an example of, of what you're trying to do. And you guys talk about that in your book some. Can you kind of explain that and how that impacted this particular script? It's one of the first things we do always when we start something new. We always did this. We come up with an idea and then we to help us get through the process to figure out, you know, what are possible ways to go and what are paths to avoid going down we just make a long list of movies that are in some way related to what we're talking about. They might be related thematically. They might be, it might be a character that's sort of similar to the character we're writing. There might be some similar story elements, whatever it is. We make a list of these movies and these are sort of our, our mentor texts, I think is the educational term. Um, we sort of look to them as, as guides and it's extremely helpful when we were doing, um, the Wiz Kid, which you know ultimately was not made, but uh, when we were working on the Wiz Kid, you know we loved Bill Murray movies. We grew up on Bill and Murray movies, and when we started seeing the version of this story that a studio, particularly a studio like Disney, might actually release, we said to ourselves, you know, what about Bill Murray as a twelve-year-old slacker kid? That's a voice we know. That's a character we can write, and that would be super fun. Ooh. And if I were a twelve-year-old, I would really respond to that character because when we were twelve-year-olds, we did respond to that character. So um, that's sort of what we do with models. I think that's the way we used it on that movie when we wrote The Family Man. We had a whole other list of movies that we look to for inspiration and instruction. We do it all the time. We, do, we don't steal from them. We're not trying to replicate them. We're trying to learn from them. Uh, you know, you can't always talk to the screenwriters themselves, but you can see the work that they create and uh, you can learn a tremendous amount from it. Okay. Well, that's fantastic. And, and who bought that? Which studio bought that movie? We sold it to uh, a new division at Fox called Fox Family Films, uh, which was run at the time by a guy named John Matoyan. And his his first lieutenant, his right hand, was Chris Melodandre, who went on to become the founder of Illumination and has, you know, exploded the world of animation through the work he's done there. No, absolutely. So, uh, so now you're made men. Yeah, Hollywood. 
you, you sold something, you have representation. What, what yeah. happens? What happens for all of us that haven't hit that that jackpot like you did? What happens then? What'd you go buy? <laughs> it's so fun. We bought matching cars, I think. We did. <laughs> Which cars was that? What'd you get? We bought matching Infinity G20s. David got the one with the gold package. <laughs> that was a little that was a little flashy for me. <laughs> I was a little more subdued. So I went with forest green, no gold package. Yeah. yeah. The diamond package. We bought new cars. I mean, we did, we did, we moved into separate apartments for the first, for the first time since we moved out there, which was, uh, that was, that was nice. I mean, I missed them, but, um, you know, we had really, uh, we had spent a lot of time living together now, I think it was close to three years. So, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, here's the thing is like, Hollywood keeps you on your toes because you know you get that first one and you think that's it I've arrived I'm here I'm it and within 2 years from selling that first thing we were we were back down kind of like asking ourselves all right what can we do I mean the movie didn't get made that we that we sold and it was part of a two picture deal which we sold so we sold another script and that hadn't gotten made either and we were in a situation where, okay, we, you know, we had a couple bites at the apple. We, we had written two good scripts. I think that, you know, um, the first one was the Whiz Kid. The second one was this one called Guam Goes to the Moon, which ended up becoming quite a famous script in Hollywood, but it hadn't gotten made. So, um, you know, Hollywood only is only so interested in people that um, sell stuff without it getting made. It's you know you can sustain that for a while, but not for a long time. We we wrote a, a spec episode of a sitcom, thinking maybe we'll get into TV, um, but it wasn't really. You know, we had uh, for about three years uh, we were making a living, but we had no no security because you're only as good as your latest script. And then uh, we came up with the idea for The Family Man, and that proved to be the script that really, I would say, launched our career uh, because that was a script that was destined to get made and um, kind of kind of be most closely associated with who we were as writers. Also, you know, after it's an interesting question that you ask about after selling The Wiz Kid, because what happens when something like that happens is that you end up getting a lot of meetings, you know, all the producers with deals at all the studios. And now there are many, many fewer who have these kinds of studios, studio deals than there were at that time. But all these producers want to meet with you and the studios want to meet with you, the studios who maybe they, maybe they were thinking about buying it, but didn't buy it. Uh, you go on all these meetings Um what do they call it now, Dave? A bottled water tour, I think they Yeah, the bottled water tour. Well, the bottled water tour is like the pitch meetings, right? When you're going and pitching. It, it, I don't it's, know. Yeah, whatever it but, is. Yeah, you get a bottle of water at every one of these meetings and you take three sips of it and then, you know, you have to recycle the bottle. <laughs> but, um, but you have all these meetings and usually they don't amount to anything. Um with the family man, it was different because after the whiz kid, everyone wanted to meet us because we'd sold a spec script. And so there's sort of these new kids in town who've just sold a spec script and everyone's got to meet them. That's part of your job to meet the new writers, right? 
with the family man, people already knew us. They already knew us from the Wiz Kid. They knew us from Guam Goes to the Moon. But everybody wanted to sit down with us again because the family man they loved, it wasn't just a script that sold. It was a script that people really loved. Not everybody, obviously, but there were people who just loved it. And, and suddenly, you know, we kind of went from writers who were on people's list, like, okay, if we have a high concept comedy and we need to find a writer, let's have Diamond and Weissman in, or we need someone to rewrite this script. And it's a high concept comedy with heart. Let's, you know, let's talk to Diamond and Weissman. But after the Wiz Kid, there were people, again, it's not everybody, but it's like, it might even have been like one at each studio, who maybe not Warner's, but one at all the other studios who they really wanted to work with us. They really After wanted the, to the family man, not the whiz kid. After oh, the, the family man. Did I say the whiz yeah. kid? Yeah. Yeah. The family man. Yeah. There were, there were a handful of executives and, and producers who. That's right. After reading that script, they really wanted to do something with us. And for, for the, for the first time, we also were in a position where we didn't have to generate our own material. You know, when you start out, um, there's, I think, you know, we were sort of, I, you know, at the time, original idea guys, you know, this was a time when you could sell original ideas. IP was, was not the main focus for the studios. And so that was mostly what they were interested in from us is our original ideas. When we were, after we wrote the script and it became pretty well known, they started offering us um, the material that they already had in development to rewrite and take this voice that they saw in the script and bring it to their material. And, and that would prove to be, I mean, that's that's a much more lucrative phase of your career because um, then you're, you know, people are looking at you as, you know, in those days, they called them script doctors. I don't know what they call them now, but they're looking at you to fix something that they know is broken. And now you have a lot more leverage because, you know, if you can fix something that they have that's broken, that's a separate skip. And so we entered in a phase of our career, even, you know, around the time that Family M was getting made, where um, we could we could work on other people's ideas. I mean, you referenced at some point William Goldman. um, that was the time that we got the opportunity to rewrite William Goldman, by the way. Um, that movie did not get made. But um, yeah, it was a it was a different it was a different phase. Right, well, before and, we jump into that phase, let's digress yeah. and let's go back to the seed of the idea for Family Man. How did that evolve into what it became? Because I haven't mentioned this to you, but I absolutely love that movie. Oh, I thank you. To my children. I probably watch it every couple of years if it pops on somewhere. Uh, it's one of the few movies that's in that rotation. And uh, I just want to know, how'd you get there? I think that movie started in the way that a, a lot of them did around that time in our lives and in our career. We were sort of hunting around for a high concept idea. And um, the idea of the instant family was appealing to us, someone who was living his life in a way that was in no way consistent or compatible with family life, suddenly finding himself in a situation where he's got a, a wife and kids to take care of. And how does that upset things seemed like, uh, seemed to us like there would be something there. And we just started going deeper and deeper into it. 
And, and, you know, what's interesting is you really see how like an idea is really something it takes two two elements. Right. So that was sort of just, you know, something that we that we did. You know, these movies were getting made. I think nine months came out around that time. You know, sort of an instant family was, you know, was such a it was a pretty common trope in, in Hollywood at the time. But we were also really interested in this idea of. What what is the domino effect of decisions that you make in your life? And, you know, you make a decision when you're 18. How does that play out when you're 35 or, or, or whatnot? And so, I mean, it was actually like there was this idea that we had in our heads of like, you know, what if there was a, a bank, like a computer or a data set or something that was every possible decision, every possible outcome of every possible decision? And, um, you know, we started playing around with that idea. And that really, I think, took us into this area of reverie and Christmas and thinking about like a life that you could have had that you didn't have. Um, And so we married these two things, um, this very high concept kind of commercial instant family thing with this much more soulful kind of exploration of like life as a series of decisions that lead to different outcomes. And when we had those two things together, that's when we knew we had a powerful idea. And in fact, the pitch for that movie, we sold it on the pitch, was, you know, kind of 80%, I think, of what actually ended up on screen. Um, and so that's really kind of when we knew, oh, this idea had had a, had you know, reverberation in people's lives. They thought about that stuff. And I think earlier in our career, like in in the WizKid days, we probably would have taken six months to a year on the computer-generated version of that idea and just gone down so many wrong paths with, with that movie. But by this time, we'd learned a little bit. It was the third movie we sold. And... um we'd learned a little bit about, you know, how to expedite the process and get a little bit closer to the end result faster. That's fascinating because you just said the movie's about all the different possibilities. And when you started your careers, you would write all the different possibilities. You would write every one of them. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's where experience comes in. You know, you can eliminate about, you know, 999,999 of those possibilities in the first 10 minutes of the conversation. Uh, you know, it's, it's, um, so yeah, that's where experience comes in. And that's where it's what you were saying before about models and, you know, sort of the better, you know, what a movie is, I think the closer you are to being able to eliminate a lot of really bad choices mm-hmm. as a writer. You know, one of the things that's inter- inter- interesting about that movie is the way that it ends. Because it's not like a beautifully wrapped up and then they lived happily ever after. How did that come about? That was the ending that we pitched. That was the ending that we wrote. That was the ending that got the director to come onto the movie and got Nicolas Cage to come onto the movie. As you can imagine, the studio had some other ideas. (laughs) They felt, and by the way, you know, the ending is not not a happy ending. It's a it's a nuanced ending 
And I think to us, an honest ending because the whole idea of the movie was that the choices that we make have consequences. Mm -hmm. That's the idea. So to come at the end and say, oh, well, forget everything you just saw, you know, this particular choice is not going to have consequences. The character is going to get everything he ever wanted and more. Uh, that just felt kind of false to us. And um, really credit to uh, the director, Brett Ratner, and the producers, especially uh, Mark Abraham at, at Beacon, um, who really went to bat for us and withstood significant pressure and said, this is the movie we're making. This is the idea. This is the movie we're making. We're sticking with it. And and they never shot another ending. We the studio wanted us to shoot another ending. Um, and, uh, you know, and they, and they called, you know, the head of the studio, who's, you know, one of the most powerful people that we have ever dealt with in our lives. She called us and she said, can you please help me with the director and get him to do it. And, uh, you know, we, we wouldn't because we believed in it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a mixed thing in a certain sense. We got, when we showed the movie to Ivan Reitman, who we'd been working on evolution with him before the movie came out and he loved the movie. He was so complimentary, but he said, he, the first thing he said to us is like, that ending is going to cost you $20 million at the box office. And can you imagine the, the most successful commercial Hollywood comedy filmmaker, our hero, Ivan Reitman, telling us he was 100 percent right, by the way. Um, it was that was a, a bitter pill to swallow. But we also knew that this was the honest ending of the movie. And, you know, what are you going to do? Um, it's a it's a it's a creative conflict and choice that screenwriters have to make every day. You know, uh, at what point do you say, OK, this is about what the story demands versus this is about what a business demands. Mm. And, you know, I think that if you want to, if you're in it for the long haul, at some point you do have to draw that line. And you drew the line on the first movie that you ever had. That's right. <laughs> Could have been the dumbest thing we've ever done. Levander. Well, we, we certainly wouldn't have done it if we hadn't had the support of the director and the producers. And they were the ones we were really in the trenches with. I mean, all credit to the studio for taking on this movie and releasing the movie and marketing the movie. And they really were wonderful. And this was the actually the only conversation we ever had with them where there was any disagreement at all. The rest of it was fantastic. But, you know, when you're in the trenches, when the people you're in the trenches with say, we're not changing a thing, we're not changing, you know, then you think you feel emboldened, you know, you feel empowered and emboldened and you think, okay, we've got something here and let's not blow it. So we trusted each other and, and, uh, we, you know, the movie might have made more money if the ending had been different. The movie would have made more money if it had been released a few weeks earlier also, instead of being released on Christmas as a Christmas movie, because Christmas movies don't play after January 1st. So there are lots of things that could have been different, but the movie did well. And, uh, and it's really been an enduring movie. I mean, you know, people, this, it came out before Twitter, but now people tweet about it every year. That, that, that must be incredibly gratifying for you guys. It's a great film. Great, great movie. Um, let me ask you a question. Um, how do uh, how did Christmas become such an important part of this movie? 
I just interviewed Shane Black a few weeks ago. And, you know, he's known for Christmas as being a trope in his movies. And he talked about why he why he uses it on a regular uh, basis. But why why did you guys choose to do that? Well, we certainly don't use it on a, on a regular basis. But I think for this movie, it seems so natural because uh, Christmas is a time of reverie. Uh, you know, you're it's the end of the year. You're thinking about your life for better or worse, how you got where you are. That's what's going on in the movie. I think it felt to us like it was a way to heighten everything that yeah. was already happening in the movie. And yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I mean, you know, Christmas is a time where families get together and uh, where you experience kind of the warmth of, of, you know, those closest to you. It's not such a great time of the year if necessarily if you don't have people like that. And I think that that's what makes Christmas such a um, an enduring time to set a movie because, um, you know, it really is a time of the year where, you know, your life is examined and who you are, who you become is kind of a, a big part of it. So um, it made a lot of sense in this in this film to do it. Um, and, uh, you know, we had also, I mean, we'd grown up on Christmas movies and, you know, I think we had a, we had a, a, a just a strong affinity for them. Uh, and, uh, so yeah, it made sense. I don't, we never wrote another one. I mean, we sold, or we tried to sell another one, I think, but yeah, we never really wrote another one. Nope. Yeah, Christmas movies have become their entirely own separate genre now. You know, they're, yeah. we should yeah. have cashed in on some of that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now you're writing a bunch of stuff for people. Your film is being made. Um, what happens next in your careers? That was I, I, we, we, we knew Michael Tolkien a little bit at the time. And uh, he said to us, guys, get ready. Your life is going to change. And he was right. Yeah. It really, it's a significant, getting a movie made with a movie star and having it be released by a studio in a prime slot like that, it really, it changed so much in our career. And, uh, you know, and you're not necessarily ready for it. Is 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 the truth. <laughs> but, I mean, also the casting was spot on in this yeah. movie. You know, right down to the kids. Yep. The dog. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Tia Leone was perfect yep. for that. Role. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. We were lucky to have all of them. They were they were really all great. And um yeah, we're very, very appreciative of that entire process and the outcome. The whole thing was uh really a tremendous blessing in our really? lives. You know, and what happened afterwards is you get offered a lot of stuff. You get offered rewriting jobs and things like that. If you have an original idea to pitch, people are so much more receptive than they would have been. But um, it also, it's challenging because it's hard to know when you're in that situation. I think, you know, aspiring writers and this was certainly when we were aspiring writers, you want the path to be as easy as possible, as easy and smooth as possible, and you want to arrive. And it's very difficult and frustrating when it's difficult. 
But when the path is difficult, it also really forces you to dig a little deeper and really find the essence of an idea and really deliver on the best expression of that idea. It really forces you to chip away at something and find what it is at its essence and deliver on it. And when things are very easy, it's easier just to sort of, you know, you collect a paycheck, you do a job, you don't put as much time and careful thought into something, you deliver a product, you deliver it on time, you're still talented and funny and you still have heart. But, you know, it's um, it's easy to get into a little bit of a creative rut that way, I think. And I would say, I don't know what you think, Dave, but I, I think that in that sort of post family man period, there was like a little bit of a creative rut until, and this is a, a little bit of an irony. Uh, we met a producer, Andrew Panay, um, and he brought us an idea that we really loved called paternity leave. And together we developed this idea and, and went out and sold this pitch and wrote a script that really turned out really, really well. Very satisfying, great process, good screenplay. The irony is it wasn't made, but the pitch and the script and the fresh energy and the fully realized execution of it sparked really a renaissance in our career. It was only a few years later. <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't that long after. But uh, Dave, do you disagree with any of this? This is like sort of maybe benefit of hindsight. I, well, I think not only do I not disagree, I agree wholeheartedly, but you, you, would, you know, it points out something that um, is, is, is true of almost any creative career in a commercial field, which is that, you don't know when the high point of your career is while you're experiencing it. You only know that years later in high in hindsight. So, of course, the irony is that, um, you know, only when it's over and you're back down here, do you know, oh, OK, that was the best. That was the best time. And there's something quite tragic about that and, and very ironic. So, um, yes, I agree. Uh, we had two two nice peaks in our career uh, kind of went like that. And um, I think that, um, you know, you're fighting for survivals for so much of it. You're, you're fighting just every, you know, when you're, when you've chosen this creative life, it's not a job, you know, every time is a new job. You have to sell to keep going. You, every time is a new thing. You sell, 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 sell. And it's a lot of pressure to like sort of maintain that because now in the interim, we have families and kids and responsibilities. But, um, you know, listen, I think what sustained us is we were best friends and we always had this friendship that uh, animated the work and uh, energized the work. And so and we still have that. And that's what we you know, that has sustained us throughout the whole the whole thing. Um, but yes, I agree. Uh, that is a, uh, you know, you, you get into this pattern where you got to keep selling, you got to keep selling. Um, and, and just as a postscript to that story, you know, we went out with this pitch, um, paternity leave. This was actually like one of really one of the high points of our career and probably one of the high points of our lives, quite frankly. I mean, it was one of those 
days when uh, our producer, entrepreneur used to call it going out on tour. You know, you've got a pitch and you're going to every studio. There were probably nine meetings we were going to be taking, you know, five the first day and four the second day. And uh, by the end of the first day, we got the call that we weren't allowed to pitch it anymore. There was going to be a bidding war. It was going to be between two studios. And we were just standing. We were supposed to pitch the movie at Paramount. We're standing, I think, in the parking lot at Paramount. I don't remember if it was Paramount or Disney. And, you know, we were just getting these reports back and forth between two studios. Incredibly exciting. It's really like, you know, the, every screenwriter's fantasy, right? That bidding war over a pitch. It was fantastic. It worked out great. The script turned out great. Ultimately, not made, not great. However, the next pitch we went out with with the same producer, Andrew Panay, was the pitch for Old Dogs. And we pitched it at Disney, and Disney was the loser in the sweepstakes for paternity leave. They didn't get it. They bid on it and didn't get it. And they weren't going to let this one go. And they made an offer, you know, the minute we left the room. And, um, and that movie was in production 11 months after the pitch was sold. Wow. So, I mean, that was, it was disappointing that we didn't get paternity leave made, but uh, getting old dogs made so quickly was, uh, you know, that was for us, it was unprecedented. And for most writers, it's unprecedented. Now, was old dogs an original or was that something that you rewrote? Yeah, yeah it was an original idea. Yeah. And, you know, and, and it's funny, like you sort of, I mean, every, every screenwriting career, is, is 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 told in two stories. You know, there's a story of the writers, but there's also the story of the industry, right? Because you're part of the something. And, you know, there was this great heyday of the spec script in the 90s and early 2000s, right? When that was the primary way that screenplays were sold and careers were launched. And it was uh, in many ways, I think the the, you know, it was the golden years of screenwriting. Uh, you know, if you had original ideas and comedy, but anything really, you wrote it, you sold it. It was it was amazing. But the business was going through a decidedly, you know, sort of pronounced change. And um, the studios were becoming less and less interested in original ideas, in particular in comedy, and more and more interested in IP. Because as the studios were being sold to larger corporations they needed something that had a built-in marketing hook. And IP has a built-in marketing hook. It's something that has been famous in another medium, a novel, a play, uh, you know, um, I don't know, something that had in these days a podcast. Um, and so there was this big transition that was going on. And, and, you know, once again, we didn't know it was the last gasp of the original idea. We were just riding this crest, this wave. It was amazing. But it was the last gasp of the original idea. And I think, you know, the couple of the last few things that we sold as originals were probably among the last few pitches that sold in that way. And uh, yeah, and everything changed in particular for us. Uh, many writers got into TV at that time, and that's when kind of the great um, awakening of, of television was happening. And 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 you know, as as original voices were being eschewed in the feature business, they were being welcomed in the TV business with open arms. And uh, that's a transition that we never really made, although we we dabbled in it. But um, 
you know, we were movie guys till the very end and we're still movie guys, even though nobody really cares anymore. <laughs> the, the movies are kind of dead. And no, people care. I but care. I, <laughs> um, it's a different business. It's more about um, executing um, IP in a way that um, the studios and the streamers are, are kind of more interested in seeing. Right. No, there's no doubt about that. Um, so uh, you guys do that. And then one in Rome, how does one in Rome happen? That's a great story. Is, it is actually it is a funny story. When in Rome was one of an, one of our early pitches. I think it, it may have been the one right after family man. Is that right? We sold it right after after Family Man, and uh, I think we sold it in nineteen ninety five or ninety six. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, and we sold it. We sold it to Disney, and we actually worked on it. We developed it for several years at Disney. I think under four different studio presidents. Yeah, that sound. I think it was four different studio presidents, and. Um, in the end, it it didn't get off the ground, and then right before the writer's strike, the studio was in need of content to get it through the strike. That, a strike is like an impending strike is such a boon for, you know, for, for, for people because the studios just want to get stuff in production. So they have it ready to go. So, you know, for some reason, this, that script, which had been around at Disney for so many years. Oh, but Andrew Panay came on with Kristen Burr and like sort of reinvigorated it. And the movie got greenlit right before the right before the strike, I think. Yeah. And the director, Mark Stephen Johnson, is someone who had wanted to do a romantic comedy and Disney liked him. And he sparked this idea. So it was basically a partnership among uh, Mark Stephen Johnson and his partner at the time, Gary Foster, and our friend and producer, Andrew Panay, and us. And uh, we all went to New York and and made the movie together before the strike happened. It's awesome. So then this whole switch happens. Streamers start jumping into play. The industry's changing. How do you guys navigate that? How do you how do you adjust you know, like everybody else, you you uh, you have decisions that you have to make, though you kind of don't know that you're making those decisions. Uh, you know, as we as we sort of said in the beginning, we were movie guys from Philadelphia. You know, we grew up on movies. We grew up on the great original comedies and, and dramas that were made in the 70s and 80s from the great directors and the great writers. And I think that. You know, we dabbled in TV, but it was never something that was close to our heart. It was more just like, okay, that's where the business is going. We we were just we just were in love with the movies, and so we kind of stuck with it, knowing I think on some level that it was a stupid business decision. But um, you know, this is when the heart kind of says, okay, this is this is what you love. Do what you love. And, you know, we got lucky because we had success early in our career that um, and we were smart. We, you know, we knew that screenwriting careers in, 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 in the best circumstances don't last forever. Um, and so, you know, when we made a dollar, we put 50 cents away. And um, if I had one piece of advice to any young screenwriter out there, that would be the advice I would give is when success hits, 
be responsible. Don't go, don't go thinking that success will hit every year in the same way. It's like, you know, try to, don't try go to be reasonable. matching cars. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, they were infinities, not Porsches. <laughs> but, exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. We, we were, we lived responsibly even as we were able to live well. And, um, and we arrived at a point when the business made that shift because our real love was for movies. We just decided that we'll just write the stuff we love. That's and, awesome. and that's what we've been doing. And, um, you know, it means writing more on spec and less on assignment. But, you know, that's okay. That just means we're writing on our time and not somebody else's time. And, uh, you know, your uh, your first draft is going to look a lot more like you want it to look like because you're not working for somebody else. So um, that's what we do. Okay. So tell me, how does this come about? And for those of you that cannot see, I'm holding up their book, Bulletproof. That was also a little bit of a product of that. We sort of were looking at, you know, how can we make an impact? The business has changed what we do, which is mostly original comedy, somewhere on the spectrum of comedy, is represents such a tiny fragment of what the business is interested in. It didn't make sense for us to devote 100% of our time to something that represented such a, a small percentage of what the business was interested in. So we decided over the years, we'd mentored a lot of writers. We'd had countless cups of coffee with aspiring writers and talked about what our process is and what a career in Hollywood is like. And we just decided to write that down, put it all in one place and make it available to people for the price of a few cups of coffee. And um, we reached out to uh, to the publisher, I think best known for performing arts books um, and said, this is something we're interested in doing. And they were helpful and supportive and uh, guided us a little bit. And we basically wrote a book that uh, is not full of elaborate theories of screenwriting or philosophical approaches. Uh, uh, we're not rewriting Aristotle's poetics. We're just writing a very practical account of how we've done what we've done over the course of a 30-year career. And the sort of added lens of the book, as you uh, alluded to earlier, is seeing the entire creative process through the lens of all of the stakeholders who have to say yes in order for a script to sell. So you have an idea, you want to write this idea, but um, what is it that's going to attract the interest of a manager, an agent, a producer, a director, an actor, a studio executive, a marketing person? How do all of these people view what you're writing and um, you know to what extent and in what way do you take that into account while you're doing it so it's really meant to be just a very practical sort of mentoring texts like an ongoing cup of coffee with two produced screenwriters mm -hmm. david you want to add anything to that uh, no that's a great answer i think that's exactly right uh, we were you know i mean this is uh uh 
sustaining a career in, in, in screenwriting is not easy, but it's a very joyful career to have anybody. I highly recommend it to anybody who, who can get it. It's, it's, it's a great way to, to, to earn a living and to spend your life. So, and so, uh, yeah, we wanted to, we wanted to pass some of that on. And, uh, I think, um, yeah, it's, 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 I, I really feel like, um, yeah, Dave's teaching now and, and, uh, I taught some when I was in graduate school and there's something very gratifying about, about doing that. And so I think we, it's one of the most gratifying experiences we had is writing this book. Nope. I'm someone who's a college professor for 20 years myself. I cannot agree more. I got it. I got an email this morning from a student that I taught maybe seven years ago, just kind of out of the blue, talking about some projects and something that inspired them that we that I'd said. And it is incredibly gratifying. There's no doubt about that. Well, um, I want to go into a lot more detail in the book, but I'm going to have to finish reading it before I do that. <laughs> I apologize. But maybe we can have a part two to this conversation in the future. But there were a few points that I did get to that I wanted to ask you about. One was the three C's. Can you elaborate on the three C's? Yeah, that's a little gimmicky. <laughs> the three C's, what Lavinder is referring to for anyone listening, is one of the first questions we ask in the book is, what is a movie idea? What are the essential ingredients of a movie idea? We've all had the Thanksgiving dinners when you tell your relatives that you're a screenwriter and they say, I have a great idea for a movie. It's my Aunt Irma. He's hilarious, <laughs> you know. Is that an idea? I think we all know that it's not. So um, what we're positing in the book is that there are three components. We use the three C's because it's easy to remember. And the three C's are character, concept, and context. But it's basically, uh, it's a character in a situation, in a particular situation that offers a challenge and an opportunity and the context is the world of the movie. Under what circumstances uh, is that character undergoing that challenge or taking advantage of that opportunity? And when you have those three ingredients, uh, you have the makings or the beginnings of the makings of a movie idea. No, I love to see that you wrote that. One of the things that I use in my teaching is uh, make a very clear delineation between concept and story, which is like an emotional story and, and you know, a, a concept. And uh, yeah. you know, one of the reasons I call my podcast script cake is I look at the cake that you bake as your story. And then the concept is the icing that goes outside of it. And uh, I would, I remember one year I brought, I was brought into a, a writing program on a, to teach screenwriting for, and I'd never mm -hmm. taught in the writing program. And I was going to help all these students rewrite the screenplays that they wrote in screenwriting one, two, and three. And so I gave this explanation between the difference between a story and a concept and one of the girls raised her hand and she goes, you know, Professor Gill, I, I don't think my story has a story. <laughs> and she'd written this whole 90 page concept. <laughs> That's the first step <laughs> in understanding, you know, what we're going to rewrite. We're actually going to add a story in here. And, you know, another thing that you guys are very specific about is having a point to your story. Right. That's okay. the... Uh... That's sort of the, the first cousin of the idea is the theme. You know, I think we say in the book, it's, you know, what your movie's about, that's the story, and what your movie's really about, 
And that's that's the dramatic argument that you're making in your story. And if you don't have one, the story really has no purpose. Mm-hmm. So uh, and stories that have no purpose aren't interesting for very long. It doesn't matter how good the visual effects might be. Right. If you're not actually about something, if you're not uh, if you're not uh, if you don't have a dramatic argument at the center of your movie, then uh, there's no wind in the sails. It's just kind of sitting there. How did you guys come across that? Because you know that's not listed in a lot of screenwriting books. When you're looking at the the seminal works out there, you know uh, uh, they don't really talk about that kind of stuff. But like for example, in Family Man, what is the point of the Family Man to you? So for us, Family Man was always sort of a meditation on uh, the tension between ambition and love. And it's set up in the very first scene in the movie. He's pursuing a business opportunity. His girlfriend asks him not to go. She has a bit of dialogue that, you know, 20 some years later, I can still remember, you know, the plan isn't what makes us great. What we have together, that's what makes us great. You want to do something great? Let's flush the plan. I don't know what that life looks like, but I know we're in it together and I choose us. She is making a dramatic argument. She's making the argument of the movie and he can't accept it in the beginning of the movie. And what it takes to get him to accept that argument takes two fucking hours. (laughs) That's the story. That's the story of the movie. So you can say, oh, no. And then he wakes up in this life and he's not driving this car. He's driving that car. And he goes bowling. Well, how much of the details of the events of the story do you want to hear before, you know, you want to just go take a nap? Like without the dramatic argument of the movie, there's no movie. Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. I could not agree more with you guys, and I'm so happy that you you point that out. And then you actually have something in your book that I think a lot of people will disagree with. I happen to be somebody who will agree with it, (laughs) which is uh, to not really focus on your log line until after you've flushed out your your whole story and, and, and the details. Can you talk about that process and why you should wait to do that as opposed to do it from the get go? Yeah, well, I think the best argument for not focusing on the log line early, and I know that, you know, there are those who disagree about this, is go on Reddit. Go on screenwriting Reddit and read just the volumes and volumes that, uh, of, of discussion about people's log lines. It seems like people are engaged in these sort of mental gymnastics to try to craft a perfect log line of a movie that might not even have a good idea. And it's the first thing they're doing is coming up with the log line. I think Blake Snyder told everyone to come up with a log line first. And I, you know, all respect to Blake Snyder, who was a a successful writer and wrote a very successful book on screenwriting. But it seems to us that um, log lines are for after the movie's written. Log lines are for after you know what your story's really about. You've written the screenplay and someone asks you, what's your movie about? And then you can tell them what it's about. But if you spend hours and hours and weeks and weeks trying to craft this perfect log line before you've really explored 
the characters and the story and the themes of your movie, then you end up writing to a log line. The log line might be shit. So, you know, outlines used to be for TV Guide. Now they're for Netflix or for Rotten Tomatoes or IMDb. They're a way of communicating in a sentence or two what a movie is about so that someone sitting on their couch can decide, is this how I want to spend the next two hours of my life? That's what they're for. He's he's 100 percent right. Uh, You know, the reason we wrote this book is to tell aspiring screenwriters what a career is really like. And if you're a professional screenwriter and your career, you don't spend any time thinking about the log lines. I mean, that's an afterthought and it should be an afterthought because, you know, it's not it's nobody's going to buy your script off a log line. Nobody is going to buy an idea off a log line. It's actually much more of just a reflection of how well you know your idea and what you know, if you had to distill your idea to one sentence, it reflects, you know, an intimate knowledge of your idea. That's important. That having that knowledge, yes, that is important. And I, I agree 100%. And when you have that knowledge is when you're at the end of the process. Right. right. Not at the beginning of the process. So when we start thinking about log lines is when we give a script to our manager or agent and they read it. And they ask us, what's the log line? Yeah, great. We're going to send this out. We're going to send this to some producers. Can you give us a log line? And then we are like, oh, uh, yeah, okay. We'll come up with a log line. You know, and then and then we do it, but we have the benefit of having actually, you know, mined the story for months and and written it for months. And, and that's a hundred percent true. If you're not doing your job right as a screenwriter, if your log line doesn't change eight times in the process of writing a movie. That's so true. I know sometimes I'll get to the end of the movie and I'll be like, oh, okay, that's what the story is about. Um, you know, once you finally finish it, because it's like uh, having an arbitrary GPS point somewhere in three states away. It's not until you get there that you actually know what the That's journey right. is. And, um, one time uh, when I was directing my first film, we're about two thirds of the way through directing and I was in a scene. And we finished the scene. I was like, oh, that's what this movie is about. And I had already been directing it. And it was like, what? <laughs> and by the way, that's great. I mean, you know, when you had those screenwriting four kids in your class, you know, I'm I'm sure that the lesson of that is like, you know, you're rewriting something that you thought was done. Well, it turns out it's not done. And neither is your log line. So, you know, don't worry about it. Just... Actually- I actually tell my students that the writing process doesn't actually begin until after you finish the first draft. I think that's wise, sage advice. Yeah. I mean, it teaches people what what this business is really about. We tend to take a very practical approach to, to our writing. But even for us. It's a creative process. There's no getting around it. And and if you you know, if you don't remind yourself all the time that it's a creative process and it takes time to really discover the essence of what something is, the process will remind you or the results will remind you. You know, you'll write something that's, you know, off base, maybe kind of shit. And, um, you know, you'll realize, okay, we we screwed up. We didn't know what we were doing. We got to go back and, and figure it out. That's just... Certainly your agent will remind you, I assure yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, I've had times where I've written something and I go, realize, oh, wait, 
that's not the protagonist. This is the protagonist. And then you have to go back and, you know, redo everything from that, from that perspective. And you yeah. know, you have a supporting character that their part keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And right. bigger. you I realize, Oh, they're not a supporting character. I'm writing the wrong mm-hmm. perspective of this now. Um, it's a fascinating book and I'm only 50 pages in. So uh, I can't wait to finish the rest of this and would love it. If you guys would uh, do me the honor of coming back at some point and digging into it even more. Well, this was fun. We'd be happy to. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, I know you've got big stuff coming up. Uh, I know you're teaching and working. We, uh, you know, a producer approached us. One of the things that, you know, you you retain as as writers of an original screenplay are this, the stage rights. Um, so a uh, producer approached us. Uh, we, we briefly tried to do this with the studio and it didn't work out. And a producer had been kind of tracking the project, a, a, a theatrical producer, and he wanted to do it. And he had an idea for, you know, what he loved about it. And we were, okay, let's try it. So, um, you know, we wrote the book. He and his partner wrote the the music and lyrics. And uh, we workshopped it at Cal State Fullerton. And now we're, you know, we're trying to do an eight to ten week run um, of the of, of the the piece in in New York this Christmas. So we'll see. Thank you guys so much for taking the time. Uh, enlightening, interesting. The book is fantastic, and I look forward to talking to you in the future. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. All righty. Until next time. Thank you so much for listening to the Script Cake Podcast. Once again, I am your host, Lavinder Gill. And if you'd like more information about Script Cake, you can check us out at scriptcake.com. And if you want to know anything else about me or buy my book, you can check that out at lavinder.com. Until next time.